This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History. And now we reach the bottom of the pyramid. All right. The bottom of the pyramid is uh, mainly the free men. Okay. Like the people who are not soldiers or laborers. Probably the people working the farms. We know almost nothing, nothing about these people. And below them, there is only one type of people. Serfs. Slaves. Right. Oh, so even worse. <laughs> we, we talked about slaves already, and they were not as common as they were in the Roman Empire. Correct. And they were not important to the Assyrian economy. Right. I mean, there's, you know, we, we don't have, like, you don't have a lawnmower. You don't have any. Just think of all the tools we have today that we kind of have to do all these things ourselves. Just type a letter on an email or just sweep your floor like run the vacuum the dishwasher the washing machine like these you, you couldn't you didn't have that so you had a servant or slave that was like your that was your, today those are our slaves in those days those were the slave you know those were your machines sort of and the reason we, we are somewhat confused about slavery in Assyria is that the word uradka that I just told you about mm-hmm. that I call myself your servant if you're a superior there is the word Erdo, which means slave. Okay. But it also some, it's also something you will call yourself when addressing a superior. Oh. 
so you can replace your servant with Urdu. I see, I'm your slave. Your faithful slave. And we have an example where the Turtano himself, the field marshal, refers to himself as the Urdu of the king. Ah. I mean, the word doesn't have the doesn't have the connotation that it has today. You know, we just think of it as like in a different way. So when people talk of Urdus, we don't know if they are actually slaves. Yeah, but we know that there are two types of slaves. There were debt slaves. This is a practice seen in many societies. Mm-hmm. A debt slave is someone who goes into slavery to clear his debt. And that would be very hard to get out of, I imagine, because now you're a slave. But the the right, there are rights for a debt slave. Yeah. He can marry a free person. He can be a witness in a court case. He can conduct business transactions with other slaves. And he can even own property. Hmm. He could also buy his own freedom. But manumission, the, the practice of freeing a slave, is very rare in Assyria. Yeah. But there's a little. I guess. The, oh, sorry. Go on. No, no. I was just going to say, like the difference is like we call like the the, the the most recent slavery that the world had was sort of like chattel slavery. They call it. You're sort of treated like an animal. But this was not nice. But it's not the same type of. You know, it wasn't like they grabbed you, put you on a boat, and hope you know worked you to death for twenty ten years. It was definitely a different type of slavery. There is. Uh, there has never been more slaves in the world than right now. Really? That's... Slavery is very, very uh, existent in the world today. But that's another matter. Yeah. Uh, the other slave you could be is much worse than to be a death slave because some foreign captives are made into slaves. We've mm-hmm. seen them. They often appear in our stories being deported and then treated as Assyrians or in a border region. Mm-hmm. But they were also captured as slaves. Of course. And this was mostly for manual labor. Yeah. And the worst of the manual labor, like mining and stuff like that. Yep. So this was incredibly horrible to be this kind of slave. But it was not a slave you'd have in your home or do anything for you. Right, because your slaves, you could have, your slaves were like your cousins and your brothers and your half-brothers and half-sisters because they were just part of the family. <laughs> yes. That's such a different way to live, you know? When we really, it's really hard to say, well, it'll be like if you had a slave living in your house. I, I, that's just really hard to actually understand what that would be like. I just rewatched uh, the Spartacus series. Yeah. And uh, they they had some great depictions of the mines as the very lowest way to be a slave. It's funny because I where I live is there's the mines right here, and so I'm half Polish, half Italian, and I live in the Polish area. And then so they weren't slaves, but it was the worst job. Um, northeastern Pennsylvania, Scranton's known for the mines, coal mines. We had anthracite coal, and I mean you know they worked. So they weren't slaves in the in the sense of it, but they worked you pretty bad. I mean, they, you had a, you live in the company's the company area. You had to buy from the company store, so you got paid, and everything cost you as much as you know. You pretty much made no money because they charged you to live there, and they charged you to eat, and if your family was all there too with you, 
And, you know, it came in from Poland and different, a lot of Eastern Europeans. They didn't speak the language. And then say you, like, died or got hurt. Say you just got hurt in the mine. They left you in front of your house, and two or three days, they said, you know, your family, you have to pay or you have to leave. So, I mean, it's not much different than slavery. God. Right? Yeah, it's interesting. When you ever come visit me, I'll take you on a coal mine tour. Oh, <laughs> how exciting. <laughs> no, it is pretty cool. It takes you down into the coal mine. You can see how they went. I mean, I was at the coal mine in, in Krakow. No, I'm sorry, it's not coal. It's salt. So, because Polish people were mine, good miners, so they came here to, you know, mine, and they really worked them pretty pretty rough. It's interesting, different to Sweden, actually, because we, we have a lot of iron. Okay. Uh, we have a lot of copper. There, there is a lot of mining going on in Sweden, and yeah. since uh, a, a long time back. But the the mining communities have always been somewhat independent, and uh, uh, at times even kingmakers. That you, you, if you want to have a rebellion, you go to the mining areas and raise an army. <laughs> wow, amazing! Yeah, you know, we, in Minnesota, there's a lot of that. Copper and iron, and we there's a lot of Swedish people moved, you know, moved to Minnesota to to be miners there. We we are a people of miners. How about that? I made an entire episode about women in Sparta, and now I want to mention a little about the role of females in okay. the Assyrian society. So, being a woman in Sparta was probably the best place to be a woman at this time. Yeah. And Assyria is nowhere near. <laughs> the position of w- women in Assyrian society is terrible. And it's even worse than in Babylonia. Huh. We don't see many women in uh, legal or business transaction documents on their own behalf. Because they, they have basically no individual rights. A woman is entirely dependent on her male relations. Either her husband, her father, even her son, or her brother. And the position that these males have in society. So if you are the wife of an important guy, you are an important woman, but you have no importance in your own sense. Hmm. Uh, You are, as a woman, confined all the time to separate quarters to the harem, if you're in the harem, and apart from your male relatives. So your only social intercourse, this is somewhat like the the situation in Athens a little later, that you will only have social intercourse with other women. Hmm. And you have to care only about marriage, the rearing of children, and taking care of the home. Yeah, that's your job. The one one exception would be, we, we have talked about a few females, Mm-hmm. I think there are religious positions, and we had that mysterious woman in the pyramid. But overall, being a woman sucks in Assyria, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is the the position in almost all of the world in the seventh century BC. Yeah, we've come a long way. It's funny because you think they think that, but you know, way before the in the Neolithic, the societies were quite possibly more matriarchal. And then I think when you went to these war, more warlike societies, then they became more patriarchal. <laughs> we have an interesting thing there about the Vikings, where women were quite powerful. Yeah. 
because the Vikings were out raiding or trading on their ships. So somebody had to be in charge of the home. Which meant that the country itself was mostly run by women. Ah. Except on the movie, on the show Vikings, there are extremely gorgeous women with swords fighting. Yeah, don't don't uh, don't try to take anything uh, as a history fact in that show. I had to quit watching it after five episodes because I was so angry. Yeah, I imagine I made it through. I mean, that helped you. Look, I mean, God, they were good-looking women. <laughs> they are all over here. <laughs> oh, you son of a gun! In the first episode of Vikings, the Vikings were living in. In a place name, which is actually a body of water between Denmark and Sweden. And they didn't know where England was. Uh, which they had been visiting for hundreds of years before the events in Vikings. I remember, yeah, right. Oh, wait, they live in Doggerland or something? Uh, no, they, I think they lived in Shelland, but I, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but they were living in a body yeah, of water. Yeah. Which sort of makes the intro uh, correct. But okay. went downhill from Back there. Back to the series. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to mention that uh, we have a great example of families rising within the empire. Oh. Because we see, by the late 8th century BC, a lot of Aramean names showing up. Yeah. We saw the Arameans being assimilated into the empire. And then there are, like a hundred years after that, yeah, a lot of Aramean names showing up. On high officials. Yeah, I bet. Uh, but not higher than... Uh, or the highest example we've found is the, the captain of the crown prince. So the crown prince, main military guy, was an Aramean with very high status. Then and then they started speaking Aramean. The empire. Uh, yes, because Aramean is easy to speak. That would help the Arameans. Right. That's pretty amazing. It was a very multicultural empire. I also have a little about uh, racism. I'm glad you said that, because I was just going there. There are a lot of free foreigners in Assyria, some with very high positions. But many of them are known by where they come from. So we can have documents referring to the Arab or the Babylonian where the Assyrians seem to ignore their personal names. Okay. Or that maybe they are ignoring their personal names to to blend in or something like that. So when they would call them that, is that is that a derogatory way to say it or just sort of a description? It's not entirely clear. Mm-hmm. But there seems to be a degree of racism. Here. Yeah, sort of like, so you know, it's a very. I was tell, remember I said I was doing more research on the I had done on the siege of Jerusalem, and it's uh, Sennacherib refers to a Philistine, a person who was a Philistine, and he said that Hittite, and he's called him like a Hittite, but he was actually a Philistine, and it's funny because it's you know we call people Philistines like as a derogatory, oh that guy's a Philistine, so. And that calling him a Hittite was like a derogatory way. There really weren't Hittites at that time. So they, you know, used that as like a racial slur, essentially. Interesting. Yeah, right? I remember that. It was just, you know, such and such the Hittite. But he was a Philistine, so. 
There is a piece of circumstantial evidence for racism. Uh, it's a, a marriage contract. Hmm. It, it, it applies to an Egyptian family okay. living in Assyria. And the mother wants her son to find a wife. But in this quite unusual marriage contract, the mother purchases a woman to become her son's wife. And this is not normal Assyrian practice. Yeah, I'm fascinated with this one. But it seems that being an Egyptian family, nobody would marry the son. Uh Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of, I guess it's cultural race, that kind of thing, for sure. If we were to put in the title of this podcast, Racism in Assyria, we'll get like a million hits, but we are not going to do that. (laughs) And that's an inside joke with my friend Sai, history with Sai. Yes. There's this one guy, he constantly, he'll have this whole episode and it's all about not that. And then he says, racism in Egypt. And then, anyway. <laughs> uh, there is another group of foreigners that may, may be quite high in the pyramid, but they are not involved in the running of the state. These are all the princes and nobles of other lands living at the Assyrian court. Oh, they would be in the Assyrian court as well? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So like the vassals. They are there. Oh, sure. And then the wives, too. No, they are there as uh, mainly for the observance of treaties. Yeah. Hostages in a way, too, right? Or prisoners. Yeah. Like Gary, Mr. Greyjoy. What was his name? Alan Greyjoy. Theo, right. Yes, Theon Greyjoy. Oh, we even have a document decided uh, where it tells of the people of Papu. I don't know where that is. But there were people uh, of Papu living in Sargon's court who were discovered conspiring with other foreigners. What happened to them? Mutilated, I'm sure. Uh, probably. And of course, the king of Elam sometimes resides in, uh, in the Assyrian court. 
We are right. Yeah, his whole family, depending on the yeah, especially in around the six fifties and six forties, six sixties. And I assume the the guy that Assyria wants to put on the throne of Elam has fairly high status at the court. I would imagine he had his whole family with him. He has whole his whole crew with him. Yeah, that's a soap opera in the making. It seems, though, that when the Assyrians come to the provinces and people beyond their provinces, they are not actively hostile to them, except when they want to take their stuff. Right. But they are interested in other cultures, and they know a lot about other cultures. And this might be reason to keep a lot of foreigners in Assyria. Yeah. But they also they, they have an interest in other countries and they want to learn about them and they have the means to learn about them. Yeah. Yeah. There were also an interest in languages. And there were often a lot of people at the court that could speak different languages, and that would be very useful. Yeah. We have this one incident where Gyges sends the emissary. We talked about that. I remember. And no one can understand him. No one can understand him. I think he was a Phrygian. Which was a great surprise to the Assyrian court that, wow, what is this weird language? Right. It's amazing. That's real. That still fascinates me because it was in Anatolia. He was from Anatolia and they, uh, hey. There are a lot of mountains between. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. That was interesting. That was definitely, that's a, that's interesting. Yeah. And then there was, um, yeah, but there was heat. We, oh, well, we remember when he said uh, Sennacherib got all of um, Hezekiah's musicians. And his daughters and all those people came to the court. That was, you know, he gave them them. I want to finish this treatise on how the empire was run with uh, the comment that the system actually worked. Yeah. Remember that there was never an uprising led by the working class or something like that. Right. There was no peasant rebellion that no. we know of. Maybe they just didn't tell us about it. Right. The system endured for such a long time. And when there were revolutions, it was often led by people very close to the top of the pyramid. Right. And then and just think, when the Syrian Empire ended, they just handed it to the Persians. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, they had their administrative the Persians, but it came from the steppes. I mean, they weren't, they were... They learned from the Assyrians, and then the Persians made an enormous empire. I also have to give the Assyrians one thing. The poor of the society, for example, widows, orphans, cripples, the people that couldn't take care of themselves, they were taken care of. Huh. It was a duty of the system to do something for these people. They were not ignored. And exactly what they did is unclear, but they did. They, they, right. It meant something. If your family could, couldn't take care of you, somebody would take, they would figure out a way to take care of certain people. Yes. And they, this was going on at all levels of society. Right. And you would have widows, because like we said, you're, you, know, you were married when you were 12, when you were a girl, and the, your husband was 30. So just the sheer, even if he lived this whole, you know, till died in his bed at 55, he was, he was still going to be a widow for a while. And my, my impression is that it meant something to everyone in Assyria to be a part of this empire. Yeah. And that they, that they were proud that they were a part of it. 
Yes, I do. I agree with that, too. There, and there was a lot of benefits to being part of this empire. I mean, you could drink wine. You could drink good wine. You could have good food. You could not get raided by people at night. You know, you could... You had, you know, they were traders. They were, so they were, you were a consumer of their, their things and you could have a nice house. There was, there was definitely a lot of benefits to empire. Just like today, there's a lot of benefits to empire. I can only compare with what it must have been like to live in Sweden at this time in the 7th century BC. Right. Yeah. You know, you could, you had to get your own food. You didn't, you know, there you could, you know, there must, you go to get some food from somebody. You didn't have to grow everything yourself. Yeah. I mean, in Syria, there you was could eat uh, and do all kind of things. Very little infrastructure to, to do anything but, uh, yeah. Live. Yes. <laughs> Survive. Oh, Ra- Radar talked about it. People were living close to water because water was the only transportation that was available, but you couldn't live. Uh, within view of the water because then you would be killed (laughs) oh my gosh yeah that's real hard living that's it for the society structure now Uh, we do have a lot of other interesting subjects that we will yeah so you know we talked about all these advisors and people and I think some of the what's interesting it, to me is sort of how they dressed so you know we discussed how the king of assyria he has a special link with the god Asher, and he was his tool he was like his human instrument on earth but you, like you we just went through this whole list of advisors and um so they took they took advice from their advisors and because in the very remote past there's a long tradition in the persian gulf area and the um the whole near east to use advisors and in the very remote past, you know, they believed that there was a flood and that fish creatures came out of the Persian Gulf every day to advise humans on all matters of civilization, like government, farming, irrigation, you know, warfare, everything. So these fish creatures would come out and advise people and teach them how to become civilized. What? <laughs> right? <laughs> they, they were not fish. They were fish creatures. Yeah, like a god. I believe the main god, his name was like U, E, like, I'm so bad, I apologize. But it's like a very short name, and he was, you know, sort of, he would be like Prometheus for the Greeks. Okay. Right? He, gave the, right? he gave the humans fire, so the fish creatures are the ones that came out. But So they came out daily, um, and they were the, the advisors. So after the flood, they never came back, according, you know, to the legend. Where are they now? We need them. I know. We need some fish some fish people. So yeah, because there was huge fish in the in the Tigris and the Euphrates, they're still there. They call them um they call them tigris salmon. They call them tigris salmon. And they still could grow to be like two meters long. So you know, Jonah got swallowed by the fish. That's probably what he was swallowed by, not a whale. He was probably swallowed by one of these giant um fish. So if they're six feet long now, you know, you could imagine how big they could have been back before there was fishing and giant boats and all these things. You know, there's fishing, but you weren't catching them all. Okay. So, so what? So the reason I bring this up is the advisors, like doctors and you could call them exorcists and things like that, they wore these fish coats. So they were like they would get one of these tiger salmon and cut it, gut it out, and everything, and they make like a hat out of it. So I'll post a link because there's we have like an amulet with a woman being. Uh, she's giving birth and there's these fish people there 
to help her make sure that the demons don't eat her baby. So, um, but they would wear these long fish coats, and you'll see in other reliefs, and they would basically from the top of their head all the way to the ground, and they would wear these fish coats, which I think is really cool. So I'm not sure, you know, which all ones were the fish coats. I'm not sure, like all those people we talked about, but I believe that a lot of times when they were advising the king, that would be like their official you know, garb. They put on this fish coat and I'm, that was sort of... I'm st- looking <laughs> at a picture of an Assyrian in a fish coat and uh, I am quite amazed. Right. So, you know, when the vizier puts on his fish coat, you better listen. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I, um, well, you know, we have like the Pope wears a funny clothes and we have like different traditions that we kind of used to. So it sounds so odd, but they must have just been a, you know, a thing. Another, some of the specialists they had were musicians, were very high rank, you know, specialist type of people. And they sang in Sumerian because that was the ancient uh, language of the gods, which is interesting to me too, because, you know, in the, in the medieval days, you used Latin to be the most, you know, that was the language of God, right? And then I was been doing some research on the pilgrims and these Calvinists. And so some of these really super religious guys, they, wanted to learn Hebrew because that's the religion of the gods. You know, God's language must be Hebrew. So the Assyrians believed that the God's religion, I'm sorry, the God's language was Sumerian. So the songs and these kind of things were sung in Sumerian so that the gods could, you know, hear them and like them. I ha- I have a hard time getting over the fish coats. <laughs> uh, now, now we see an Assyrian inscription with guys in fish coats. <laughs> I think maybe that should be our Halloween costume. Oh, it's so ugly. Uh, nobody will get it. <laughs> right? And what did they stink? Like they had, well, I'm sure they cured, you know, cleaned them out and cured them and did whatever they do. So they didn't stink too bad. But Wow. I know. Can you imagine? And then, yep, I just wanted to mention, I feel all the talk we said, all the organization. And we, in the Assyrian Empire was a big, big empire at its time. But Karen Radner also makes it clear that it was a, the land size was about as big as the country of Spain. So in a way, it wasn't so big. But Spain's one country today, so you have, you know everybody speaks Spanish for the most part, except in you know <laughs> Barcelona area. But there in these times, you know there were so many cities and cultures and tribes and everything so to to manage an empire the size of spain was like you know managing a far-flung empire in the time of the spanish empire um and the syrians did a fantastic job of it and i feel like they did it like business people and then like i said then the persians and the babylonians and then the persians came and you know really um just ran with it and you know like they say sargon the first and Uruk had the first empire, but that wasn't a very big empire. I mean, similar type of thing, but it didn't last as long, and they didn't, we don't have all the records, but it doesn't seem they had this sort of administrative level. I mean, they laid the foundation for it for the Assyrians, but they weren't to this level, and then the Assyrians laid the foundation for the Persians, which, you know, and then to the Ottomans, and, you know, here we are. Uh, Luckily, we got rid of the fish coats. Oh my god. <laughs> Thank God we didn't start with the fish coats. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna get a fish coat and take a picture and post it on our Facebook page. 
Okay, now if somebody comes up to me dressed in a fish dress, I will listen to their advice. I, I have I have um, a confession to make. I every time we record this podcast, I'm wearing a fish coat. <laughs> I do not believe you. <laughs> You're true. You're right. Oh you can't my gosh! Get salmon this big? No, not here. No, <laughs> I think that's the end of the podcast. Fantastic. I think we still have, dear listeners. We still we just. There's still some more we, we, we could probably cover on the Life in a Series. Yeah, we, so there are a lot more we can cover. Stay tuned to the series. We are going to talk yeah. about uh, the legal system. We'll talk about hunting and trading and uh, religious matters. Yes, religious matters. I'm going to dig into some more of the religious matters too. Like the fish people. <laughs> yeah, the fish people are going to be part of it. I'm going to wear my coat. When I re-record it. <laughs> oh my God. So yeah. Um, okay. Uh, if you like this uh, mess of a conversation, you can uh, go to Patreon and support the podcast. Because we do need your help to stay around. We've been around for a long time yeah. and we want to be around for a lot longer. You can find us on Patreon.com and search for Fan of History. It's a mutual agreement in that if we don't produce episodes, you don't pay anything. So if we would, for any reason, miss an episode, you don't pay anything. Right. Uh, yes. Thanks to everyone who has supported us. I think it's. I hope you think it's worth it. I also I love when listeners reach out to me. I mean, um, you know, we did the episode with Anki Do. Anki Do is working on a really cool. Um, episode so about how the near the near east and culture acts how much of it actually transferred to the west that we don't realize and so we're going to talk about that and i I just love i love when listeners reach out so please do reach out to us please thank you bernie speak to you next time thank you dan yep talk to you again dan cheers cheers if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.